Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how goes it today? I... I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We hope is, uh, everyone is doing great as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, uh, be sure to hit the subscribe button both on the podcast and the YouTube side of things. Uh, follow me on Twitter. If you're not following me on Twitter, you definitely should be. That's the best place to get everything that we put out into the world, investing related uh, at Focus Compound. Links are in the description. And of course, on every single podcast, when we look at historical financial information, uh, you may think that Jeff is just recalling all these numbers just off the uh, tip of his tongue, um, just from his um, memory. And a lot of times he is, but um, when he is not, we are using quickfs.net. Uh, go to quickfs.net is uh, the website that we use. As it says on the homepage, if you're watching right now, it's financial modeling made quick, hence the name Quick FS. Jeff loves it because there's zero ads on uh, this website, uh, so it's quick. So nothing is really slowing it down and it just basically gets to the meat and bones of uh, everything that you would want to look at in a company uh, from a you know, 100 foot overview. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about um, something that you wrote about back in 2010. Okay. Somebody actually sent this to me and said, this is one of my favorite articles that Jeff has ever written. And I actually have not read this article before because okay. it wasn't written on GannonOnInvesting.com. Uh, it was on another website. It was on another website. Mm -hmm. And the title of it, people always like these lists, right? Okay. Here's some, uh, I guess, like a little bit of a pro tip, if you will. If you are looking to build your Twitter, come up with lists. People like that. It's, it's retweetable. You know, it's just good to put onto the world. People like that. They like checklists uh, and stuff like that. And something tells me you know this, which is why you chose the title. What are the four most important numbers to know about a stock? Mm -hmm. So do you remember this article? Uh, no. Okay. I a lot of articles. Let me, them. Let me <laughs> refresh your memory. Okay. Um, you went through the checklist manifesto. You talked about the book a little bit. Okay. And you basically were talking about limiting unforced errors. You gave a great story about um, walking into a hotel room. And if somebody was murdered in that hotel room, okay, what conclusions can you basically draw from that? What clues can you draw from that? What leads can you draw from that? Okay. Um, bringing it back to investing, you gave four vital signs when oh, you're yeah. looking at a company. Mm -hmm. And those four were first, the Z score, second, the F score, three, the 10-year free cash flow margin, coefficient of variation, and four, 10-year real free cash flow yield. Okay. So we're going to be talking about these four, and we could kind of go through the genesis of it, why you like to use these. We've talked about the Z score and the F score a little bit, just kind of in passing, right? But right. we never actually dedicate a full podcast to them. Right. Of course, we've talked a lot about the coefficient of variation and uh, you know free cash flow yield and stuff like that. So we'll also go through that. But you know, basically in the article when you were talking about this, you said, sure, you're going to miss a lot of ideas. Um, you know, things may not look perfect because if you use this four-point checklist, but you're not going to basically blow up in a lot of different situations if you follow this checklist. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about the Z-score. Okay. How do you find the Z-score? There's another website, where, which is where I usually pull it from, which we can go to. Uh, Guru Focus is where I usually look at it. But let's talk about is what it is. It's easy and, to calculate. Okay. Actually, you can calculate for yourself in Excel um, very, very easily. Uh, you, you could also 
the F score would be a little more complicated to calculate in uh, in Excel, mm-hmm. uh, but Z score is very easy. And uh, so it's the Altman Z score. There's actually a few different versions of it, and different websites will use different versions, and it won't work as well for certain kinds of companies. Um, but it's a method of predicting bankruptcy uh, short term, like a year, year and a half, or something out. So what is it doing? So I believe the gray zone for it would be between 1.81 and 3. So if you have a score higher than three, it's predicting that there won't be a bankruptcy within the next year or so. And if it's predicting, and if it's like below 1.8, I think, then it would be predicting uh, that it has high bankruptcy risk. And then in between that, it's not making any uh, distinction, you know? Um, so it, it would work best, it, it would work, what it would probably work best for is a private manufacturing business. So if you have a service business, data things, stuff like that, it might be a little more confusing. Um, but it should be predicting best, I would say, for manufacturing. And then the public versus private thing is because the Z-score uses a um, basically if your equity is more valuable, um, which is a bit of a problem for a stock prediction. It, it, it is correctly making a credit distinction there. But if you're investing in the stock, then it, that's a bit of a uh i don't know if you want to call it double counting or what the issue is there but you know you probably don't want to buy a stock because it's more expensive but you may want to buy a bond if it has more expensive stock in front of it so Mm -hmm. so uh, do you still look at this metric when you look at companies yeah so for all of these things i should say um you can basically not uh, calculate them because you could probably see if there was a serious problem, mm-hmm. sort of like a vital sign. You could see if there was a serious problem it just through experience. So like when people ask about coefficient variation, I always calculated that for things when I was writing stuff up and to show other people. But honestly, when you have 10-year data in front of you and you're looking at it, you can tell that Costco has almost no variation and you know uh, Micron has a lot of variation. And that's know? where your eyes immediately go. Because I mean, when we do snap judgments and stuff like that, you could tell yours like, well, look at how cyclical it is. Look at the return right. on invested capital. What's happened to gross margins? Why has it changed so much in the past? Right. It's like if revenue is up, but gross margins have gone down, well, that's immediately a tell right there that something has happened. So it's really, as you were talking about in the article, it's just a lead to go and you know, figure out the information. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, okay. So from there, I mean, so basically you're saying that you, I, I mean, it's great for articles and for, uh, for people to learn and stuff like that, but really you would know from looking at a balance sheet or just a company when you first start looking at it, like, wait, there's some serious insolvency risk here. Yes. But certain industries might predict it when it's almost impossible to happen. So, uh, for instance, I think ad agencies and car dealers will often have Z scores that would suggest to you that they're borderline. When in reality, they're very safe. Um, that's just because of the way the Z-score is calculating things. It was never designed for for firms like that. Mm-hmm. So if you were to give a checklist mm-hmm. of uh, the Z-score, what would you typically look for? Oh, well, do you have it here that you can find the, the four? Uh, it's four things, right? Yeah, so I have uh, the Z-score right here. And you did say in the article I have in my notes, uh, look for Z-scores of three or more is what you originally wrote. Yeah. Yeah, I Still holds true. true. Got it. Um, yeah, uh, that's definitely true. Um, did this guy like write a book? I mean, where did this even come from? Uh, it was a, well, it was an 
let's see, he published a paper on it. I'm not sure that it's held up that well in terms of prediction because of all the different statistical things they've done, whether it is that useful or not. The The, the issue that I would have, um, he, he's written tons of things about um, studying bankruptcy things and, and stuff like that. But the, um, I'm sure you could find on Google or something the, the exact uh, metric so we can tell you what is in it. And then they're weighted. So I've always warned that this is, a problem versus like the F score is that the Z score is designed by looking at what predicted bankruptcy and then figuring out from there and weighting it, which is a very dangerous way of doing it. So um, I shouldn't say dangerous, but it's sort of when you hear people talk about like, um, uh, it's more likely to come up with a conclusion, I would say that is uh, might work in a back test or something, but isn't actually going to be accurate going forward mm-hmm. um, because you really designed it by figuring out um, what in the past predicted bankruptcy. You didn't first select the variables that you thought it should be. And then the fact that they're not equally weighted, which it can explain, um, is also another issue. So like if you find something using this method, if you find something that works in the past, this would be a very common way for it to work in the past, but not work in the future. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a prediction thing. Um, whereas something like the, the F score, which is a simple checklist, which obviously wasn't designed by finding the data and then finding the best fit to the data mm-hmm. and then equally weighting everything is much more likely to not, if to not give you a, uh, to not say that it worked in a back test, but doesn't work going forward. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I would, however, I would say that, yeah, as a thing for people to look at a Z score would be fairly good. I don't know what else you could use that would be better for making sure that you don't buy companies with bad uh, credit risk. Got it. What about uh, the F score then? Yeah, so like I think if you look for a Z score of three or higher, F score of five or higher, things like that, it'll just eliminate the the stocks that have real problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the most important things for stocks is just to whatever you're interested in to get rid of the ones that be really disastrous mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what you basically talked about in, um, in the article you actually wrote, you said, I love this approach. It works for me. It's made my investing much safer. Most of the mistakes I made in the past would have been avoided if I had been using this approach back then. But a lot of investors don't like this idea. I could see why it's limiting and it makes you feel like a baby. It's as if I'm saying you can't trust yourself to make investment decisions. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we all make dumb mistakes, even experts, and a few simple numbers can keep you from making most of those mistakes. Mm -hmm. And the context that you provide this in was if you were building an investment checklist, because you talked about uh, the checklist manifesto and just basically how, you know, little things like this, you may miss some ideas on the upside. But again, all we're trying to do is, you know, over a hundred different uh, events, we come out favorable uh, you know, each single time, like from a probability perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I wrote that article a long time ago. I think based on more experience, I would say that this doesn't work as well as I thought, uh, because I didn't realize to what extent it would, people would not kind of use common sense when looking at it. So they use it more like a screen. Yeah. So if you understand the reason why the Z score isn't working or the F score or something, then it's fine. Um, like I just said, it's not going to work with certain industries and you're going to see that everything in that industry is predicting that it it has a bankruptcy Mm -hmm. risk or something when obviously all the banks are lending to it, the credit rating agencies and stuff say it's fine. They've, you know, um, uh, do you think that's a problem with screens and checklists and stuff like that? I mean, cause it's like you could take a, um, 
a uh, you could compare like a railroad company and you could compare a uh, ad agency or something like that and they could both have a PE of 10 but right. those two PEs are completely different yeah. right a railroad that P of 10 may be a little bit more expensive than like an mm-hmm. ad agency that doesn't need to take that capital and reinvest it it's yeah. like true cash yeah, and I think I didn't realize that at the time that I wrote that. But through a lot of experience with emailing people and stuff, I've come to realize that, especially about other companies. We've talked sometimes about banks or insurers or something, and I give some guidelines as to what's safe and what's not. But then based on those numbers, people kind of think that something is, looks reasonably safe when it's clearly not, um, or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, I think checklists might be a bit of a problem because and, and i think back tests are m- much more of a problem than i thought they were and that people want something that works as a back test that they can screen and that they can just say okay this works um instead of this is a warning sign that you should pay attention to this and be clear in your mind that this is okay so if i say let's say a z-score the z-score is less than three and then you're not sure by analyzing the company that it's very safe then you shouldn't buy it you know um Whereas you might otherwise have thought, okay, I don't have to worry about that. You know, you just didn't pay attention to it. Think mm-hmm. about that. Um, so I, I think in my interactions with people since then, uh, that doing things like checklists and screens and stuff are more of a problem than I realized. Um, because I think people have come to think that if it checks those boxes, then it's okay to buy it. I think also people think that if you have a back test of something, that that trumps using common sense in buying things and so if it kind of is on a list you know of whatever it would be net nets or magic formula or something then because that strategy worked then anything there is something that they should buy and so yeah i'm i'm less um but you were never like that though i mean you've always used it as okay this is a general guideline and then i use my common sense with it Mm -hmm. i mean you're not going like oh this company needs to have an f score of three i mean you would still look at situations and understand the situation is what i'm basically saying you wouldn't let yeah, the screen I mean, one, tell you one yes way no. of looking at it is that i'm saying you know z score is a credit risk score so if it has credit risk you probably don't want to buy the equity you're behind the credit right so if you wouldn't lend to this company you probably don't want to mm-hmm. be involved in buying the equity secondly that the f score is really a trend in the financial trend of this year versus last year if things are rapidly deteriorating you want to know that and probably don't want to buy it um, variation, you don't want to buy something that's highly unpredictable. Say the P is six or something. Okay, but if one year's earnings to another has no relationship, then you probably don't want to treat that the same way you would a P of six if it has very much the same earnings year mm-hmm. to year. Um, and then also what we talked about with the, with price. Um, you know, I, I just think that after talking to people, they kind of obsess about each thing. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter. I mean, they they should all be correlated if it's a good measure. Mm-hmm. So if you could get a credit rating from something instead of getting a Z score, you know, that would work just as well. There's lots of other measures. You know, if the PE works really well, then probably price to free cash flow, EVD, but they'll all probably work pretty well, you know. Um, so I, I guess I worry that what I realize now is that because of when you do something like that, unfortunately, if it checks the boxes, even just barely, then people feel like, oh, I can buy anything, with, even though there's clear signs that you shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, absolutely. 
Um, F score though, it gives yeah. a little bit more of a general thing. So what you're measuring here, and if you're watching on the screen, I have it pulled up on Investopedia, the profitability, uh, leverage, liquidity, and source of funds, and the, the operating efficiency. Yeah, and well, it you really should, breaks down People should more. just look up each of these scores themselves. I think Wikipedia will have it. Wikipedia certainly will have the Altman Z score as an entry there that you could figure out. Um, yeah, so F score has, um, this can score between zero and nine. And it's basically a measure from one year to the next. You could say it's an earnings quality measure. It's a little more complicated than that. It's actually a mix of, I would say, earnings quality and uh, change from year to year mm -hmm. are the two factors. So some of the measures are things that would be obvious signs of earnings quality problems. So like, but these are things accountants would have known forever. So that's why this is kind of a, an easy measure that if this works in a back test, it's a good thing to have because you know that you didn't have it kind of fit the data like you might with the Altman Z-score. So um, a, a common one, for instance, that, that accountants would always know is if your reported uh, income is particularly high versus your cash flow from operations, your earnings quality is extremely low. And it's more likely you've manipulated earnings. It's also more likely that something's wrong with your business and uh, things like that. And that's something that when you talk to people, sometimes they might not realize. Mm -hmm. So I was mentioning that I was reading a book about Enron. Enron always had terrible cash flow from operations versus reported income. Reported income was always way higher than cash flow. Yeah, certain units of GE, GE too. in oh. recent years have been yeah terrible that way. Um, and both of them involve some of the same tactics for earnings manipulation and stuff of um, of booking things based on models of a long-term future thing mm -hmm. and then taking as on that. Yeah, I mean, talking about things that should be huge tells right away to go and investigate. If I see a huge discrepancy between net income to cash flow, um, really on both sides, that's something that I'll go and investigate and try yep. to understand why. But I certainly am more concerned if um, net income is way higher than cash flow from operations right. than if net income is way lower. Yeah, you've heard me before. I kind of mentioned it. I, I use cash flow from operations a lot, even when people are using things like EBITDA and I'm warning them that in some cases, the cash flow from operations is particularly poor. Um, that's something that you'd want to worry about. It's certainly what I would use when looking at debt or something. So if I say that I just think a company has way too much debt, what I'm doing is I'm comparing the total amount of debt they have to cash flow from operations, uh, particularly because with some kinds of companies, they may have a constant need for working capital that isn't being um, correctly kind of taken into account. So there mm -hmm. just is a level that's too high. So, and I guess to break it down further, if anyone's wondering, what you're basically saying is they have to take a lot of that net income and reinvest it back into the business, into working capital stuff. Yeah, I think plow back in. Back in like COVID times when we were recording things, I mentioned Transdime. I think recently Transdime's had like 12 times or something their, their debt is versus their cash flow from operations um and i mean like peak cash flow from operations so in other words if they had no capital expenditures it would take them 12 years to pay off their debt unless they grew um so it just tells you that you need growth and different things in the business just to be able to maintain the debt that you have now to be able to ever pay it down as a plan for dealing with it over time obviously the plan is to snowball that over time so that mm -hmm. you grow all the time you take on more debt, but then you're just financing that debt as a permanent part of your capital structure. You know, that, that's fine. But that's obviously what the strategy is. There can't be any plan to actually pay that debt down over time. It's just uh, too much. I was going to say, what's the end game there? Is it eventually we'll pull back and pay off that debt? I don't think Because so. that never happens. They it's know if they like do a private that, equity the stock thing. will, you know, get smoked. Yeah, I don't know the answer to it. Um, but yeah, Not just trans time in general. But just when you see companies that are very much on that treadmill. That's an incredible amount. 
right? And then also just versus sales and things because they have huge margins. So, I mean, that's a, it's just one of those warning things about like having very high levels of debt versus sales is also something that's interesting. Um, oh God, the Transdon crowd is uh, quite strong. Well, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it may be a, a way to work for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just an, yeah, it's not, it's something that you can't really, I don't see how Transdime can ever, like you said, uh, if you want to say like that the plan is to ever deleverage or, mm -hmm. or stop that. No, you have to keep doing bigger and bigger deals and stuff um, probably um, because like I said, it's just too much mm -hmm. or you have to do things to convert debt to equity and things like that over time. Uh, let's see, 10-year free cash flow margin coefficient of variation. So we talk a little bit about this. Your eyes immediately go to this. Do you want to explain, I guess, the thought process behind it? Yeah, and I just think, it, so I've always thought that, that was just an easier term for people to understand, but maybe it's not. So basically relative standard deviation, I just think standard deviation confuses people sometimes. So um, so it's just a measure uh, so a dimensionless number. So um, it's a measure of the variation in something uh, when you're scaling it to the to the mean. So for instance, if you had uh, like, you might have a car dealer and it would tend to have about a 1% operating margin and the minimum might be about 0 0.8, the maximum might be about 1.2. Over 10 years, you know that the variation is about uh, 0.2 in, in that way over time for the 10 years that you're seeing. You can actually measure this if you want to in something like Excel, and that would be using a method of scaling the standard deviation to the mean. Um, so like a number that would be very low would be, uh, for an industry, it would be like 0.3. You might see that for a food company, for instance. Which shows predictability? Yeah. Um, so in other words, uh, one standard deviation, which is just a measure of, um, uh, it's a measure of basically the dispersion that you have of your results versus in this case, we're scaling it to the mean, which I think is the more important thing to do. That's what I wanted to stress to people is that a lot of times people will say like um, how much uh, the margin has gone up or down without scaling it to the margin itself. So for instance, if you have a 30% margin and you're varying by uh, 3%, that's the same as if you have like a 3% margin or varying by 0 0.3 is my point, um, same thing. So I, I don't wouldn't worry as much about having very low margins if you have very little variation in that margin. And if you have high variation in terms of just the number uh, on a very big margin, I won't worry about that either. The reason for this is that normally you're going to buy things based on price to sales. A lot of predictions are made on sales, a lot of budgeting, lots of all sorts of things. If there's high variation in the margin, then uh, it would make predictability of earnings very hard to figure out. And so I think that would be an important one to look at. And so the reason when you do do this and you do do this every single time that you're looking at a company, right, is because if you're trying to think about its potential, like intrinsic value or the value of the company, it helps with predicting it going forward, correct? Yes. I mean, personally, I, I think that it's actually a very good measure because in my experience, um, variation in margin, whether it's gross margin or operating margin, uh, if the company's doing the same thing year after year, is a very good indicator of a company's relative position in the industry, but mostly mm. susceptibility to competition. Mm -hmm. So companies that have very little competition tend to have little variation in their margin. Companies that have strong competition have variation in the margin. You can also see it in which margin is varying. So you can usually tell if it's um, volume-based stuff that you'd see cyclically in the operating margin, or if it's gross-based uh, stuff, which means that there's severe cost 
uh, volatility or price volatility. So mm -hmm. like in commodity, you might have very different gross margins. So if we look like, for instance, Micron is a good example because you can see in which margins varying. So I it, love whenever we talk about like a company that's just all over the place. We always use Micron. Yeah. Well, because you can see, and, yeah, look, and so this margins. is what I mean about, you know, you can graph these things or whatever. Yeah. Everything will show you the same results. You can see return on invested capital. This is a cyclical company. There's tons of variation that you can see in that margin. But anyway, so if we look down at the operating margin, you don't need to do a co uh, to go into Excel and calculate what the coefficient of variation is because you can see that's all over the place in the operating margin. But what's interesting here, and this is why you can tell it's a commodity type thing historically, is the variation in the gross margin is also high. Mm -hmm. so, that's um, the so normally variation in gross margin is incredibly low versus variation in operating margin for most companies. So like a manufacturer might have, it could have 0.5, 1, it could have a fairly high variation in the operating margin. Um, and yet might have, it could be as low as like one-tenth of that or something in the gross margin. The gross margin wouldn't really be moving around as much. Um, it's not uncommon for the operating margin to vary three times more than the gross margin when you scale it that way, like I'm talking about. So um, to the mean in each case. So if you had a 35% gross margin, you would tend to you know, have much smaller variations in that than you would in the operating margin because the gross margin is so much bigger than the operating margin. Um, when you see huge variation in gross margin, that tends to be that is a commodity type thing. I mean, the really, really big variations are if you both have lack control on your um, input side and on the output pricing on both of them. So like the most extreme would be like, uh, like an ethanol company or something, right? Because it's basically taking a commodity input, a commodity output. They're not related to each other. It's not like an oil refiner where there's a strong relation between the two things. And so the variation will be all over the place. So what do you see there with the margins and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, so the gross margin in 2011 was 20%. Um, it's been as high as 58.9% in 2018. And then in 2020, it was 30.6%. So yeah, looking at the gross margins, right, and the crazy variance that tells you that, as you said, uh, the input like on things like price and stuff like that is all over the board as well. Yeah, and so the highest number that you see there is as strong as a very strong branded company um really i mean uh stronger in many cases and then the lowest number that you see there is in line with some very mediocre retailing things and mm -hmm. stuff yeah. so whenever people talk to me about stuff on the podcast and stuff they're always just kind of bringing up i mean just the things that you're able to take away pretty quickly in your head from looking at companies at like a snapshot like this and you said something that i think is going to help out a lot of people when you said if you look at like the gross margins for example and they're just all over the board all over the map and very volatile it could be a, a tell to the competition in the industry and it's true if you look at any company that basically is like very dominant in its market or dominant in its industry the gross margins are pretty predictable we just looked at costco you could look at any um you know theme park company or any business that really just is regional or owns you know maybe they operate in like a an oligopoly um it's much more predictable yeah and so uh, i mean a good example of that would be because you're used to hearing about the combined ratio right with insurers that's the reverse so if you think about it uh it might help to think in that terms because you have a margin which is between the number that you would normally be hitting and zero the low cost producer is going to have much more stable margins because they're less likely to go over 100 and so the the margin will be 
fatter there. And so the same amount of, of um, when you scale it, you're going to see the variations much lower. So it just is easy for people to think of that because you probably know in car insurance that I've said that Progressive is like the best underwriter and Geico has the lowest expenses. Those are the two that you'd expect to have less variation than the others. And it's just easy thinking about it in terms of of that costco does have the sort of membership part of its business mm -hmm. right so not a lot of things are varying that way but what it's why it's achieving that really is um that you're low cost in your industry so when you have really really stable operating margins usually compared to peers it usually means that you might be the low cost position or it might be that you have a strong pricing position. Either one of those can happen. So monopoly type things often have a strong pricing situation. And then um, the, other, the other thing would be very low cost. So you can find retailers that are predictable that way sometimes, uh, but they usually have a strong um, price position. And that's the only way that they survive in the industry. What you'll see is that things that are driven by other stuff like fashion things and stuff like that will be all over the place. So I mentioned like uh, like supermarkets, car dealers, things like that. They're very price driven and you wouldn't be able to survive in the industry for long if it wasn't for that. And so your variation across the board is going to be much less. Whereas if you're fashion driven or something, it's going to be all over the place because people are coming for the selection. They're coming for things like that that are going to vary from year to year. If it's price, that's going to be a pretty consistent position. You don't mm -hmm. have usually in an industry, you don't have someone who was the price leader one year and then not the next year. The other reason, of course, is that like more of those costs are fixed. So fixed cost stuff like Geico. Geico has an advantage, but it's an advantage that has to do with fixed costs or it, to a significant extent. Those things don't vary as much as like um, costs in an industry that has high variable costs. So usually you can maintain a fixed cost advantage for a long period of time. Once you take the lead, then you're gonna continue to have it. Mm -hmm. So things like that um, will show much less variation. And But you can just look at the graphs and see those things. I mean, we could put in Costco so people can see what I mean. See, yeah, the stability very there. Very predictable, yeah. Yeah. Um, in the return on invested capital, but also like the margins. But that's incredibly predictable for a retailer because if we picked another retailer that's less general, what's especially retailer, um, you know, it, any clothes thing, uh, buckles especially retailer, um, you know, Best Buy is less so. So there you can see that you have um, higher returns at times, much higher, but more variation. And buckle we talked about before is interesting because it shows signs of like, um, I would say it shows signs of sort of competitive pressure, but handled very well from an operational standpoint. So normally companies that face that level of competitive pressure would have losses and things like that because they try to keep growing and stuff. So this seems to be an indication that the company tried not to grow and stuff. And so it sort of shows you a strategic um, sort of response. From the gross margins? Is that what gives you that tell? Yeah, because you, so normally it's very hard for a company to have the kind of reduction that you see in revenue and hold up the margins that well in a company like this. Normally what happens is, uh, it might kind of contrary to what people might expect, uh, companies that have, are responding to loss of demand in many cases don't actually just have declining sales the way you would expect. What they actually do is they lose margin. Mm -hmm. They try to maintain the same level of sales, but they lose margin. Very few companies are willing to give up um, sales and uh, trying to maintain margins, you know? Yeah. Uh, so for instance, with retailers, what you tend to see is that there's a, they continue, they outstrip their um, demand for it really. So they keep opening stores, even though the underlying economics are getting worse and worse. It's much less common to see it the other way. Same thing with insurance or something like that. You would normally see deteriorating underwriting results 
uh, quicker than you would see them actually pull back on doing premiums. Yeah, and for anybody listening, in 2012, they did a billion, 63 million in revenue and 469 million in gross profit with a margin of 44.1%. Um, and then in 2021, they only did 101 million in revenue uh, with a gross profit of 401 million, but a gross margin of 44.5%. So it's really held up quite well. And if you look across the board, it's been uh, pretty stable too. So what is that? I mean, they had like a decline of 20%, 15, 20% or something in sales cumulatively, right? Mm-hmm. Um, while maintaining the same margins, basically. The operating margin uh, decreased more, as you can see, right? They they had like no loss on the gross margin decrease, but then their operating margin did decline with mm-hmm. less volume across the business. Yeah. Um, it's extremely stable for something that's, that's showing those signs, but it has signs of competitive problems. Uh, even if you didn't know anything about it. So if you we blinded you to it, you would see that. Um, I think you'd have a very hard time figuring out that it's clothing, fashion kind of thing related thing. But you see some indications that for some reason demand dropped a lot. Uh, and yet it held up very well from a pricing perspective. So for some reason, they weren't like giving up a lot on prices and stuff like that. Got it. And then the last one on the list was a 10 year real free cash flow yield. Yeah, so with inflation as low as it's been and stuff, this is less um, significant. But I've always found that it's easier for people to um, think about the returns in the stock over time and stuff with a business if they try to think in real terms. So will it be able to keep pace with inflation, uh, doing the same kind of volume of business and things like that? So think in terms of real yields when predicting kind of what the future will be and all of that. And that will help you decide on the price to sales. Um, that you'd be willing to pay and all of that. So, you know, if you're buying in at a certain price, um, five or 6% free cash flow yield, um, that would not be bad if you think that they can maintain uh, real pricing over time. But it might be bad if you don't think that they can, right? Yeah, I mean, well, if you were to go buy a business yourself, what would you be doing? You'd say, okay, I'm going to put down let's say the business is worth a million dollars and maybe it does in true cash flow, right? Free cash flow, maybe it does $250,000 a year. And you're like, okay, that's what my payback period would be. Assuming everything stays equal, pricing stays equal, et cetera. And then you just really map it out from there. Can you raise sales? You know, does it make sense to buy that today? What does that look like? Yeah. And I think uh, with the real thing, thinking in terms of units and stuff like that. Oh, that's another one that I'd be careful with other, com- with, we mentioned Micron, all those things. The issue with that is you have to kind of predict in certain industries, whether you think that unit prices will go down or up over time In certain technology things and stuff, they go down while it's in a fast growth period that eventually stops. But if it's going to grow very quickly, then actually unit volume will grow faster than pricing. And so you'll have declining pricing. It happens in other industries too. I mean, it's not unique to technology driven things necessarily um you know happened in railroads um uh, cruises you had deflation in that industry and certainly had deflation in things like um payment networks and stuff always so you might overestimate the growth mm. thing there so i always think about like can you maintain prices over time and all of that because a lot of times people say this area will grow a lot which it might but it, it might grow a lot, but prices will be falling over time, or something else might not grow at all, but prices can be maintained or raised over time. So, you know, we talk about movie theater or something, generally been able to maintain pricing over the last 20 or so years. So as long as you sell roughly the same number of tickets, then that free cash flow yield would be a very good estimate, right? Mm-hmm. If they maintain the same market share, then you would be getting exactly that yield, but just, you know, adjusted for inflation. So 
that's a really good way of, of measuring it. And some companies can pass on inflation like that. But then, of course, things with commodities and all those things, those are much harder to figure out. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, I'm going to add the four vital signs into the description. So be sure to check that out. I'll also add uh, the article that Jeff wrote in 2010. Uh, so be sure to check that out as well. I thank everybody so much for the support. Make sure you hit the subscribe button both on the podcast and the YouTube side of things. If you're watching us on the screen right now and you like what you see, uh, go to quickfs.net. And when you do sign up, uh, because you're going to, if you go to the website, because it's so great, uh, tell them that you came from Focused Compound. Pounding. Uh, we get a piece of that and it really just helps everything that we do here on the podcast. Uh, leave a rating review. That also goes a very long way for us. Um, I'm always happy when I, I look and I see uh, that we got a new five-star review. If it's less than five, please don't leave a review. But if it's five, leave a review. Uh, thank you so much for all the support. Uh, having a lot of fun doing this and we will see everybody in the next podcast. Take care.